Hi, everyone. Welcome to the seventh episode of the Svarim Cheddar Shop Sizefi series. On this episode of the series, I was joined by Professor Adam Teller to discuss the impact of Tachvatat on Sabatianism and how the two relate. Once again, I'd like to thank the corporate sponsor of the series, Gluck Plumbing. For all your service needs, big or small in New Jersey, with a full service division from boiler changeouts, main sewer line snakeouts, cameraing main lines to a simple faucet leak, Gluck Plumbing Service Division has you covered. Give them a call, 732-523-1836, extension 1. That's 732-523-1836, extension 1. If anyone has any comments or questions or would like to sponsor an episode or to support the podcast, please email me, sfarmchatter at gmail.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the Swarm Chatter Podcast and another episode in the ongoing Shopsite TV series. On this episode of the podcast, I'm going to be joined by Professor Adam Teller, who is Professor of History and Judaic Studies at Brown University. And we were discussing an article that he wrote, which is uh, t- discussed in his book as well. His book is called Rescue the Surviving Souls, the Great Jewish Refugee Crisis of the 17th Century, about Tach Vatat and the aftermath, published by Princeton University Press, which Actually, Professor Teller was on the podcast when it was still live shows, so people can check that out uh, a while back. And this article is about uh, Tachvatat and especially how it relates to the rise of Sabatianism two decades later. So first of all, thank you, Professor Teller, for joining me once again. It's a real pleasure to be here. I had a great time last time, so I'm happy to be back. Thank you. So obviously, like I mentioned, people can go back and, and, and listen to the previous episode and read the book. Uh, on Tachvatat, and maybe they know a little about Tachvatat, but I think we should start off with a brief recap of Tachvatat, when it was, and you know, in, in short, what happened, and especially as it relates to what we're going to be discussing about how it relates to Sabbatianism. Okay. So Tachvatat um, started off as a huge wave of pogroms in Ukraine in 1648. Um, it started off as a, as a military rebellion of the Ukrainian Cossack forces against the Polish state, but very soon turned into a huge popular uprising um, during which the Jews were targeted by the, particularly by the peasant masses as they were acting as agents of the Catholic Polish nobility, uh, which were felt to be uh, exploiting um, and making the peasants' lives very difficult. Um, as a part of that uprising, the Cossacks did a deal with a group called the Tatars, who lived on the Crimean Peninsula in the Black Sea and who made their money from slaving. So as a part of those wars, um, the Cossacks and the Tatars captured Jews, killed Jews, and quite a large number were taken as slaves back to Istanbul and put for sale on the slave market. It was a moment of huge destruction for the Jews of Ukraine, which had been a really important economic center in Eastern Europe for the Jews before then. Um, Unfortunately, both for Poland and for Polish Jews, when that uprising sort of died down in 1654, two other wars broke out, one with Russia on the eastern border, where the Russians invaded through Lithuania and into Poland, and one with Sweden from the north, which they came um, from the Baltic, they came down through Poznan and Krak- um, Warsaw to Krakow. Um, and in both those cases, Jews were targeted. They were also targeted by the Poles as they fought to push the Swedes out. So it all comes to an end in about 1667. So you've got about 20 years of massive wars, incredible destruction. I mean, 90% of the houses, crop, crop yields are down 80, 90%. 
Um, and so Poland is in tatters, and Polish Jewry are also in tatters. Um, and that's the first thing we're going to have to, to bear in mind, is that what had been before 1648, the major center of Jewish life in Europe, the richest, the best organized, right, was now, you know, uh, wiped out. Not totally wiped out, because it reconstructed it, reconstructed itself, but wiped out. That's kind of, those are the wars um, that are sort of a, a key moment as far as we're concerned. And in the Jewish popular memory, Tach Vatat, right? They were called Chorban. That was like Chorban Bayt Sheni. This was the worst thing that happened since Chorban Bayt Sheni. And in fact, in the Jewish popular memory until the Shoah, this was the archetypal terrible thing that happened to the Jews. So that's really one aspect. The other aspect I want to mention now but the two aspects. One is those Jews who were captured and sold as slaves in Istanbul. Um, of course, Pidyon Shurim is a, is a mitzvah rabbi, it's a major um, mitzvah. And so the whole Jewish world organized to raise money in order to ransom the Jews who were being sold in Istanbul. That was a massive, huge worldwide campaign. Um, at the heart of which was the Sephardic community of Venice. They had a whole Sephardic network, which raised money, but Ashkenazic Jews too chipped in to try and rescue those Jews. The last point I will mention here, because it's important to us, is that, so, you know, what, when Polish Jewry was beginning to try to reconstruct itself, at the same time as they were, other Jews were trying to ransom the, the slaves in Istanbul, um, Huge amounts of money were needed. And so, um, so a, a, a really massive and multifaceted um, fundraising campaign started. Now, some of it, as I said, was Pidion Shurim. But in addition, Jewish communities in Poland would send emissaries around to other Jewish communities, Amsterdam, Venice, Livorno, and so on, trying to raise money to reconstruct their lives. And there are also individuals who have got, are either personally refugees or have got family that need to be um, ransomed who are traveling around trying to raise money. And so you have this situation of uh, letters being written and people traveling around and, and demands on, uh, on money. The, the very, very last point here is that those emissaries, as they were traveling around, also were deeply engaged, not just in visiting places, but in writing to other places to prepare where they were coming and they had people writing for them. And some of them, the more educated, in order to raise money, either to cover the cost of the traveling or to help raise money to rescue their family, would publish books and sell them. That's kind of an entrepreneurial way of raising money that, that they needed. And so the period from about 1650 to about 1660, 1670, maybe, right, you have all of this happening inside Europe and in the Mediterranean, right, trying to come to terms with this in a major moment of, of disaster in Eastern Europe. That's what the book is about. The book is about the refugees and how they were helped. Correct. And people can read more about that in the book, which will be linked in the show's description, as well as in our previous episode, which maybe I'll just put the link, even though people can scroll back and find it, I'll put the link in the description as well. You can just click on it and see the, the previous discussion. So before we get to, I think we'll go, uh, you know, before we get to, 
how this affected the rise of Sabatianism, like I said, two decades later, this was in 48, 49. Um, we should mention, to pick up on something that you just mentioned there at the end. There was the, the emissaries from Israel, the going and collecting money, the development of this trans-regional, this philanthropic network, as you call it. Just what's the history there? Talk a little bit about that as we as we can work our way through towards the the impact yeah. that, that this had. Yeah, so... Um... As I, as I said, Pidyon Shuim was, uh, you know, uh, a mitzvah rabbi. It's mentioned uh, I, in the in the Talmud. Rabbi and Ravashi have a famous discussion about um, um, uh, items that can be used for building Bet uh, Knesset. Um, the Rambam in the Mishneh Torah also talks about it and suggests that it is, you know, even more important than um, much of the um, um, money raised um, for stuck up. So, um, and so when the refugee crisis is happening, right, there is a lot of um, effort being devoted to um, sort of dealing with the refugees and Pidyon Shurim. However, alongside that, um, there, were, uh, there was another mitzvah which needed to be dealt with. And that was um, what they call, call Aniyei Eretz Yisrael, which is supporting... Jewish settlement in the land of Israel. Okay, um, in the Middle Ages, it had been the, set, the settlement itself had not been major, and th- though money was always raised for those Jews who were there, it was not a huge thing. Starting in the early modern period with the rise of the Ottoman Empire, which opened up settlement in the land of Israel because the Jews were not seen as hated enemies in the same way as they were by the Christians. You see, suddenly Jews settling in the land of Israel, a new Jewish community is developing, Tzfat, right, the major industrial center of cloth manufacture, Yerushalayim, of course, right, more and more Jews come to Yerushalayim and, and settle there and live there. Um, and um, these communities, even though Tzfat initially at least is really quite a profitable place, there's a lot of money, right, they need money to support um, support themselves and particularly to support the yeshivot and the and the, and the, and the Bahuim who are studying there and so on. And so in parallel with the money for Pidyon Shvim, you have money for Aniyah Yeret right? And if you look in the Shulchan Aruch, Karo makes, he, he sort of emphasizes it quite strongly, setting up a tension in fundraising. I mean, there is a, a serious tension in fundraising between those who want to um, raise money for Pidyon Shvim, right? And it's, that's not just, captives, there are pirates in the Mediterranean and people are being, for all kinds of reasons, being stopped and arrested. And you have the people raising money for, for Aniyei Eretz Israel, traveling around to the same places right, um, and, and trying to <laughs> squeeze money out of each community. I've got a really lovely quotation from the community in Fez, Dovka. I'm going to find it here. From, it's a bit later than 1678, in which the community is sort of apologizing why it hasn't given as much money as it wanted to. Um, uh, um, he's to the to the local poor, Irenu. He said, "We have not managed to give them what we ought to have because of all the needy people coming here, particularly the emissaries from the land of Israel and the Ashkenazim ransoming captives who come one after the other. And when we try to keep back some of the money for the poor of our own town, they don't agree and take everything." Right. So you have this picture, right? Of, of, the, of the fundraisers coming around. They're very aggressive. Right, they're, they're in competition with each other. They're in competition with the locals, uh, and it's a it, it's a big thing. Um, and that 
that is a background right, for something that's going to develop following Tachvatat. Like the need not just to deal with the refugees, but to deal with Jewish settlement in the land of Israel as it grows and develops. I just want to say one thing about fundraising in Europe in particular. Um, it's a very interesting phenomenon. Um, the major communities and, and the big regional councils, the Council of Four Lands in Poland, the Lithuanian Council, right, mandate collecting money for Eretz Israel. It's part of, it's part of their regulations that you have to do. Uh, and even during the wars, they don't, they don't, they don't give any kind of a relief. That money has to be collected. But it's funneled to a number of what they call Nisiei Eretz Israel, who collected all the funds. They were kind of these collecting points for funds to go to Israel. So in, in, in Lvov, in Poland, there was one. Later on, that was in Prague. You have one in Venice. Right? And so there is this really Europe-wide system of collecting money for the land of Israel. Of course, there are also individual donations. That's often done by investing in the community. Someone gives money to the community and then it's invested and then the, the fruits of that investment are sent to, to Yerushalayim. Um, and um, this is a system that really works very well in the first half of the 17th century, particularly because Poland is such a rich place. Right? Poland is, is, a, is a lot of flourishing and burgeoning and its economy is doing very well and there's lots of money floating around. And so it can afford to send significant amounts of money to the land of Israel to support particularly Ashkenazic Jews who are there. And the, the main center for them is Yerushalayim. And so what happens following 1648, right, is, well, two things happen. First of all, the Ottoman economy de declines. And so the, the settlements in the land of Israel are by no means as poor as, they, as rich as they were. So they need more money, right? They need, then they begin to send out their own emissaries, right? Shluchei de Rabbanan, Shadarim, whose job it is, just like the emissaries ransoming captives or ransoming people captured by pirates or, 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 or the refugees, they're also now traveling around Europe, these, these Shadarim, trying to raise money. Um, and um, it, it's never enough. Right? And the situation for the Jews in the land of Israel, really, after Poland stops sending money, declines drastically. Right, and needs to be dealt with. I, I, I'm trying to fit a lot of information into a very small space, so I hope it's clear. Absolutely right. Now, like I said, that's why I key, that's why I referenced before the book in the previous podcast because the book really breaks this down much more, you know, in depth of what was going on. I mean, that's why, right? So this is what you mean also with the philanthropic ne networks. I think I remember is that the Mayor Benioff published those letters from Rishmol Abov to Rishmol Zakuto. Yeah. We'll get to Shmuel Abuab and Zakut in a moment. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they're important to, to, to touch on if you want to get to them now. About the, the, how, so then this, um, or, although we probably should get to, I guess, before that, um, I mean, it's really what you were saying, how this really affected the community in, in, in Yerushalayim and Israel overall and Israel overall. That this, so, so really, Tachvetat had this reaction, direct reaction on them. Just yeah, from, from a monetary absolute. Absolute direct knock-on effect. The Jews in Jerusalem, in particular, the Ashkenazic Jews, are totally reliant on the money coming from Eastern Europe. The Jews in there are Jews in Germany, but not too many, and it's not very wealthy. 
they're going through the Thirty Years' War, which only ends in 1648. So things are not good there. Um, and suddenly, first of all, from Ukraine in 1648, and then from the rest of Poland with the other wars, that money rises up entirely. And in order to survive, the Jews of Jerusalem have to, the Ashkenazi Jews have to find other sources of income. Now, of course, there are Sephardic Jews, but they tend to have separate financing. Uh, Sephardic and Ashkenazi Jews are not cooperating over this. Uh, and that carries on right into the yeah, uh, part of the 18th century. Um, Matthias Lehmann's got a wonderful book about the Shadarim in the 18th century. Uh, and, and this continues. So they're not much help. So the Ashkenazi Jews actually begin to take loans from their non-Jewish neighbours, from the Muslim neighbours, which, of course, very soon transpires that they can't pay back. And you know, as, as they fall into debt, right, the, their creditors begin to confiscate their property, close their synagogues, right, and make their life really, really difficult. And so the debt crisis sort of spirals out of control. Right. So now this they have this effect. This is what happens to to like you're saying the Ashkenazi community in Yerushalayim and Israel as a whole. So I mean, how did they overcome this issue that? Clearly, like you said, in your book, you deal with extensively, there was the, the because of the competing charities going on with the slave trade with post-Takhvatad and the lack of money and what all, all these different issues. How how did how did the Jews in Yerushalayim in Israel overcome this? Right. Well, what they have to do right, is get people out. They have to send people out to raise money. Um, and and uh, the starting point is always Venice. Venice is the big clearinghouse for all of the fundraising in the Mediterranean, whether it's for Pidyon Shurim or for Aniyah Eretz Israel. And they, so they have to find people who they can send out in order to raise money. Right? Um, and to do it in a situation of competition with the Jews of Poland, right? Because... You know, what's happened in the Jews of Poland, there's so many dead and so much suffering and people are already focused on that. So the Jews of Jerusalem have got to try and find a way around it. Um, and so they do. Right? They send out Ashkenazic scholars right? um, and send them not just to Ashkenazic communities, but to Sephardic communities, too. I'll come to one very important one in a minute. Um, and, and they do bring money. Money begins to flow in. As it flows in, however... Right? It's taken immediately and sent to service the debt. Right? Because that's, that's the, the major danger facing the Jews of Jerusalem. Right? If, the, if their Muslim neighbors get upset, then you know, that can become physical danger, not just an economic problem. So they need to do that. But that means that the economic problems of the people are not solved. And, and, and the Jews of Jerusalem right, starve. Right? There isn't enough to eat. Right? And we have records of people who were there, Christians who were there, English Christians who were there, talking about, um, I've got another quotation if I can find it. Um, let's see. Here we are. So it's a quotation from um, 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 uh, an English priest. He says, the state of the Jews at Jerusalem of late, so the mid-1650s, was such that they could not live and subsist there without some yearly supply and contribution from their brethren abroad. But since the desolation brought by war on Poland, they have been in, they have been in great extremity of want, insomuch that in the year 1655, 
400 of their widows were famished to death. Okay, so people are dying in large numbers, particularly women. And this is another crisis that develops. And so what you see that Jews of Jerusalem are really, I mean, they're really in desperate straits. And so two really interesting things happen. First, the women, something unheard of in Jewish history. The women of Yerushalayim organize together. They send their own emissary, a man called Shmuel Levy from Frankfurt, right? who is an emissary of the women of Jerusalem. Uh, he, they send him to, to, the, to, the, to the women of the Ashkenazic women in Europe, particularly in Germany, and they say, you approach the women, you get the women to send us money. We want a women-to-women's economic philanthropic network. Luckily for us, uh, Levy published, he had a letter of introduction, which he published, so it survived. And we have this one copy of the little booklet survived in which we can hear the voice of the women of Jerusalem saying to the women of, of uh, Germany and Poland, raise money, set up your own gabayot, gabiters, right? And raise money from women, collect it. You have to give it to the men to send to, to Eretz HaKodesh, but note that it's for women. And so the people, men here won't steal it from us, right? And so under the pressure of what's happening uh, to the land of Israel in the 1650s, you have this attempt by the women to set up their own ransoming network, something unheard of. I don't think it works because we don't hear much about it later, but it's a sign of how difficult things were. Much more important moment, however, is what the men did. Because the men choose a great Kabbalist, one of those living in Yerushalayim, a man called Natan Shapira, and they sent him off to be their Shaddaf. Now, this is good because he was actually from Krakow, so he's a Polish Jew. So he can, you know, when, when people say we should be supporting the Polish Jews, he's coming across as a Polish Jew. So that's a smart bit of fundraising, right? They've worked something out. And what he does, he travels to Venice to, to help fund his trip. He publishes a book called Tuva Aritz, which is a, to encourage donations, from, particularly from Sephardic Jews. And then he travels around Europe. Right, starting once again with Shmuel Aboab and Moshe Zakuto in Venice, who are the key fundraisers. And they give him letters of introduction to travel to Amsterdam, which is the richest community in Western Europe by a long, long way. And while he's there, um, that's what he meets a very famous rabbi called Menashe Ben Israel. So the complex, lots of bits for who is in the in just about to travel to London in order to have the Jews of Amsterdam accepted back into England after a long time. And he's really interested in what he hears from, from Shapiro, because he knows that in London, like in Amsterdam, there are a lot of very radical Protestants, millenarians, right, who are really interested in the Jews settling in the land of Israel, because that is, as far as they're concerned, the moment before the Messiah comes. Right? And so Menashe Ben Israel makes a note of this and goes to England. And when he's talking to the in the parliamentary committee, right, he has this, this is mentioned, right, that money, you know, the Jews need money to settle the land of Israel. And Shapiro in Amsterdam makes contact with um, non-Jews who get really excited and they give him money, which he sends back to Yerushalayim. Um, 
this is important when we get talk about Shabtaut because it's, this is cross-cultural, cross-religious relig- contact, right, between Jews and non-Jews, right, um, of, of a new and unheard of kind. This had never happened before. Interestingly, to, to this day, we know that evangelical Protestants like to support her. I mean, to this day, they're giving money to her. This is the first time it starts here. Um, and so, you know, this guy is actually talking to them, right? Um, it's very problematic because you're not supposed to take money from going uh, for charity. Um, and, you know, it's, it's so, but he argues, not unreasonably, that since he's not getting enough money from the Jews, the Shulchan Aruch allows it, which is true. Um, in your idea, it's, you know, if, if there's not enough Jewish charity, you can take charity from non-Jews. Um, the money goes back to Jerusalem, of course, he's put, um, put to use. Next year, he goes back again. He meets them again, these Protestants. Right? He, he meets Jews as well in other places. He raises, he's not unsuccessful in the money as a fundraiser. And they have more discussions about religion. And these Christians show him the Sermon on the Mount, which he says to them that he thinks it's um, a really important text and it's very if people would keep this, they would be more holy than many of the Jews he knows. And then he starts talking about the Messiah and brings a take on the passage in Yeshayahu, um, which the Christians call the suffering servant passage, right? Where, uh, which they interpret as um, the prophecy for the coming of the Messiah. And he agrees with them, right? And says, yes, the way you read this passage from Yeshayahu, exactly that. Uh, this is messianic. And so the Christians get really excited because it looks as if Shapiro is now sort of, you know, accepting Christological approaches to the, to the, to the Tanakh, to the Bible, which encourages them to give a lot of money, which they do. And so do the, Jews, so do the Christians in England. Um, this is also an incredibly important moment, I think, right? because all of a sudden they're not just collecting money; they're discussing the Mashiach and, and what this means, and and, you know, and and I have no doubt that this is playing into the background of what we're going to see in Yerushalayim if I can ever get there. Which I'm trying very hard to do, very fast in order to get there. Shapiro sends the money back. The Jews of England send a, a conversionary letter along with it, saying, "Okay, we're giving you the money, but you know there's a reason. Uh, we don't like Jews. We like Christians. Here's the money. Deal with it." And so there's a big discussion in the Yeshiva Yerushalayim, which is run by Yaakov Hagis. Right? Can we take the money or not? And in his Shelos and Chuvot, there is a Chuva. It's a very short, he wrote very short Chuvot, very pithy Chuvot discussing whether or not this money can be used. In the end, he thinks it can be used. I can go into it if you want to, but I, I want to get to other places. Um, I mean, you, you could finish the story. Also, I'll mention his, 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 his father and his chuvas is called the Hilchas Halachas Ketanos. That video, exactly right. Yeah, yeah. little short. So you, you could just quickly, once we're, like I said, this is all, I know people listening, this is where we're giving the whole history of Tach Patat and the Tzedakah and the charity, but this is very important, as you'll explain, you explain in your article, to so explain why this is relates right. to Tibetan. So we'll get there. Right. But maybe we'll, yeah, explain the reason. Sure. Okay. Um, so 
The arguments that are made are, um, are this. The, Shapira and the people who want to take the money, um, right, um, try to argue, first of all, that these are radical Protestants. They don't have idols. They don't have um, figures in the church. Right? And so they're not akum uh, uh, in the real sense of the word. Right, They are acceptable. In addition, somebody raises the idea that perhaps these are the descendants of the Jews of England who were expelled in 1290, but actually stayed in place. So these aren't Goyim at all. These are Jews. Right? Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's, a, it's a stretch. Right? Um, 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 Hadiz is not very excited by taking money from from uh, from non-Jews at all. He 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 absolutely rejects the idea that these that, that even if the Jews are converted, that you could take money from them because if they've converted, then they're, they're puzzle anyway. So you can't you can't have them. Um, he argued that since the money has been given already and is being used, in a, and a lot of it has already been used because they didn't wait, right? we can just let it pass. He, so he's sort of laissez-faire approach. He doesn't give uh, a really clear halachic ruling. I think, the, I think the, the information is not clear enough to do it. But, uh, but anyway, he simply says, forget the arguments. The money is important and we need to use it. And it's been used for this purpose. And so we can all move on. Um, this finally gets us to Tachvatat. Not to Tachvatat, I mean, sorry, this argues the Shabtaut. Because as Chagiz is discussing this issue in the yeshiva, which presumably he did, I mean, this is an important matter. And, the, you know, it's life and death for the Jews of Yerushalayim. Right? Um, his star pupil right, uh, was a young man by the name of Abraham Nathan ben Elisha Chaim Ashkenazi. Who was one of the greatest students he had, right, and would later become the prophet of Shabbat And so, as he was a student, he was already learning, right, about these cross-cultural contacts between Jews and Christians and non-Jews, right, and the meaning of it and the messianic importance of it. And all of this was coming back to him, and he was learning, and this was in his background, right, when he met Shabbat and Shabbat made his claim to be the Messiah. So it's kind of sort of they say in Hebrew, it's a, it's a daisagdullah, right? There's lots of things bubbling around at the same time. But at, at the heart of it is, is Nathan of Gaza, or the man who will become Nathan of Gaza, right? Um, yeah, I, I think what we need to do at this moment is take a stop with the story. Um, and I, I've got to make a better connection between what we're talking about and the Sabathian movement. That's okay. Absolutely. I, I would just throw in before you make the connection, I would just mention also that Nathan, like I said, not only is he sitting in the yeshiva and hearing all of this, he also, like I said, the, the financial hardship is affecting him. And clearly he's hearing about this is yeah. going on from, from Tatvatat, as well as his father, Alicia, is sent to collect money, so he his own household, so he clearly is feeling all we'll, of this. We'll get back to it, but absolutely. Like, yeah, I yeah, mean, I, will, I just wanted to mention that here already. Yeah, okay, fine. Okay, so now, Shabtaut and Tachvatat, it's been discussed a lot, right? 
the, the, the first and major scholar of the Sabbatian movement, Gershon Scholem, thought a lot in his younger years about a possible connection because Tachvatad was this major crisis disaster that hit the Jews. Um, was Sabbatianism some kind of response to that? And in an early piece that he wrote, he argues in favor of that. When he comes to write his big book, however, he's decided that he doesn't think that's the case. He argues that what happens in Poland is limited. It's, it's limited to Poland. So why would a Jew in Morocco or London or anywhere else care? Right? He looked for a reason right, that spanned the entire Jewish world that would make Sabbatianism a worldwide movement. His argument was the spread of Lurianic Kabbalah, right? Um, and that's a keystone of his thesis. Um, and he traces that all the, the expressions of Lurianic Kabbalah in all the different places right, where uh, Shabtai was accepted as the Messiah. And for a very long time, I mean, Shalom was such a giant in the field that that was accepted pretty much you know, without, without argument. I mean, there were people who argued against it. That's a scholar in Israel called um, Israel Halperin, who actually worked on Tachvatar, wrote a very nice piece, sort of gently. You couldn't argue directly with Shalom because he was a difficult man. So gently trying to suggest that maybe Shalom, you know, there was another point, did he? But he wasn't, he wasn't taken on. Um, it, it really took Shalom's death and the rise of a new generation of scholars to start to rethink this issue. And it was attacked in two ways. Um, I'm sure you've discussed this. Moshe Idel in um, Hebrew University did another check and, uh, and decided that Shalom was wrong, that the Luranic Kabbalah was so widespread before Shabtai Tzvi. He said it. You did see it, but only here and there. It's not what Shalom claims. That it's this worldwide thing, which is going to allow Shabtai to become a worldwide phenomenon. And so, I mean, that's still controversial. For a long time, Edel was accepted, but now I, I, can, I can hear my colleagues pushing back against Edel. So there's a, it's an ongoing polemic. Other scholars, though, Yaakov Barnai in Haifa, who wrote a book about the social aspects of Sabbatianism, and the late Adar Bud Albert in the University College London, sort of attacked it from a different angle and tried to see how was really important for the development of Sabbatianism and Shabtai Tzvi himself. And they found a number of different things. First of all, um, I think I said it in our last interview, Shabtai Tzvi married a refugee from Poland. His wife right, uh, was a refugee from Ukraine, um, a strange woman, but very important in the history of Shabtai. Um, when he meets Polish Jews who come to, and after he's declared himself, um, he tells them that he knows about Tachvatat. He's read the Hebrew Chronicles of the war. So he's up to date. He understands what they've been going through. Um, when he's asked about the predecessor, right? he's Mashiach ben David, but there's a Mashiach ben Yosef who is supposed to come previous to him. Who is that? He says he was an unknown Jew who'd been killed in Tachvatat. Um, Natan himself, in one of his texts, his prophecies, right, um, talks about Shabtai Tzvi um, usurping the Sultan, right, and then together with him conquering the world. And Natan adds, 
this is going to be without bloodshed. And Shabtai Tzvi will only wreak vengeance on the towns of Poland where the blood of our brethren was shed in these provinces. So Barnay and Rappold Albert argued that if you look at the Shabtai, the teachings and the prophecies of Shabtai, you can see just you know, how important what happened to the Jews of Poland was. And that you can't ignore it as one of the major causes for the spread of Shabbat. I tried to take a different, I tried to take a different angle on it because I'm not, I'm not a historian of religion. That isn't what I do. I'm a social economic historian, and that means that when I examine a phenomenon like the Sabbatian movement, I ask a different set of questions. It's not that the questions the historians of religion are asking are not very, very important, because of course they are, right? Um, but, but they're not the ones that I ask. I ask, I, you know, I look at things from a slightly different perspective. So when I think about the wide and broad appeal of Sabbatianism, I'm less interested, right, in the patterns of thought and the new ideologies and the way that the Kabbalah is re reinvented and all of those things that are so important. Um, but I ask quite simply, how was it? that these new ideas were able to be spread so very, very quickly. Because it's, it's a year, two years, and the whole Jewish world is up in arms, and is on its feet. And when he converts, that news travels very fast. Um, and so I asked that question, not what was it in the way he thought, but what was the world like that allowed this to happen? Because it sounds prosaic, right? That's more exciting to think about all this kind of, you know, antinomianism and, and, and redefining Kabbalah. And, that's, and I'm just talking about where you know, people traveling from place to place. However, it's actually very, very important. Right? Ideas do not exist in a vacuum. Without somebody carrying an idea from place to place or expressing an idea, it doesn't exist. Uh, and it can't move. Um, even books, right? a book is nothing if it's not read by somebody. And if you want a book to be read widely, it has to be spread widely. So when I came to start thinking about this problem, those were the questions I began to ask. How was it right, that Shabtaut really spread across the world like wildfire? A hundred years previously, there may have been false messiahs and nothing new, but none of them prior to Shabtaut's feet had ever managed to do what he did, right, to touch the entire Jewish world. And that's where I went back finally to all the stuff that I've been talking about until now, right? Because I suddenly realized that there was in existence a worldwide web of connections between Jewish communities that allowed information about what was happening in Poland to be moved from place to place. Information about the need to redeem slaves and the redemption of slaves in Istanbul and other places. It allowed money to travel across borders, right? It was a, a, um, um, a, a way that le letters would be sent, right? Fundraising letters, information letters would be sent from place to place. And even publishing, these people who are traveling are publishing books along the way in order to help this movement. So then I suddenly started to think about how it could be right, that this already existing sort of 
informational network could play into the development of space because it's to my way of thinking it's too much of a coincidence right it's not logical but it didn't take me very long when i started looking to find out right that there is exactly a linchpin a person right who in his life in his experience shows the connection between those things. And that's, you've already mentioned him, and that's Natan of Gaza, right? Who was born um, in the um, early 40s, early 1640s, a little bit before Tachvatat, but he was very young when Tachvatat broke out. He was raised in Yerushalayim. Um, and so when people starved in Yerushalayim, his family starved and he starved, right? So he, he felt, you know, this the significance of what was happening in Poland on his own flesh and on his own family. As he said, his father was one of the first Ashkenazim sent out to raise money for the starving Jews of Yerushalayim. They sent him, first of all, to North Africa. He goes around North Africa. It's actually a very sad story because he, he goes around North Africa. He actually does quite well, gets to Venice, um, and then his partner converts to Christianity and takes all the money. So he, uh, he ends up with that. So he has to continue. He doesn't go back home. He goes on. He goes up into, into Germany and Poland, raises a whole lot more, more money, which means he's away from home for 15 years. So Nathan of Gaza grows up without a father, right, because of the conditions, right, of the post-Tuck-to-Tuck world and the issue of fundraising for the land of Israel. Of course, he's in contact with his father by letters are coming, being sent, Right, information is being moved around. This is Nathan's world. This is what he grows up in. He understands this because he's lived it. As I said, he's also deeply involved in the in the interreligious contacts that preceded the Sabbatian movement. He's seen that Jews and non-Jews can talk about these matters and find common language. And so when, when Shabtai Svi sort of declares himself, Nathan is absolutely centrally placed, right, to take advantage of this new reality in order to spread the word about the Sabbatian movement. Yeah, that's how I teach. I go around in a big circle. It sounds like I start saying stuff at the beginning. What has it got to do with anything? In the end, little by little bow and try to hold everything up. Right, and this really, yeah, this is really, really makes a lot of sense. This really reading your your paper, um, and and I read it, and what you've been saying, it really, uh, I, one of the previous episodes, listeners maybe maybe heard that I talk about it. We we talk, discussed Nathan and and the impact. It's like, like you mentioned, someone was sitting in Eretz Yisrael, and suddenly this just exploded everywhere. It's like he was running a social media campaign in the 17th century, a WhatsApp status, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok. And he, he didn't have, how, how, you know, just and it, within a year, everybody found out, like you said, once Shabzitsky converts, everybody finds out. I mean, how does that happen? How does it spread? You mentioned previous ones, you know, uh, of, of Messiah's, you know, I, I I was actually just talking to someone the other day about Usher Lemline and people have told me, oh, I don't even know who that is, you know, because he, yeah. he, he, he didn't go anywhere and it didn't, it didn't, and this is, it's only, uh, you know, a hundred years before or right. so, and that went nowhere, but in, in, he was in Germany, but, but meanwhile, when you, when you have in Shabzitsky, it just explodes, like you're saying, and that's really so, so. It, it, it works in three, there's kind of three pronged 
approach. First of all, he travels a lot, right? Um, he doesn't sit in Gaza. Right? He knows the main hubs of the fundraising network in the Mediterranean, right? So he goes to um, up into to, um, to Asia Minor, into Turkey, into Izmir, into Bursa, and visits those communities. He goes, of course, to Venice, right, in order to spread the word. And who does he speak to in Venice? Shmuel Abuab and Moshe Zakuto. And it's obvious why he's doing it, because these are the people who are sitting right in the middle of that network that he needs to use in order to spread the word, right? And, and throughout a lot of his life, he's on the move, right? He's an emissary, right? We've had emissaries for Pidyon Shuim, and we've had emissaries for Eretz Israel. We've had emissaries for the women of Yerushalayim. And now Nathan is an emissary. And he's doing exactly what all the other emissaries do. In addition, right, he's using this network to, to spread information. So he's writing letters, um, lots of letters. I mean, some of them have survived. A lot of them are the same letter copied different ways. But he is spreading the information by word, right? Um, he, I mean, he's also in contact with the people who are traveling around this network. As he travels around, he's meeting Sephardic merchants who are going up to Amsterdam or going to London or where it is that they're going. He's talking to them. So they become information bearers. He's writing this. He begins to publish, right? Like the emissaries did, like I said, all of the emissaries did that. As a, it's an extra way of pushing where what you're trying to move as an emissary is to have books published and you can take them with you and sell them and have them spread very widely across this network. And finally, what he does, which is really interesting, is that he sets up as literature of tikkunim, uh, which is kind of not, entire, not totally popular in the, in the sense of, you know, very low level, but much more accessible ways of um, ritualizing a, a, a spiritual life, which is Sabathian in its content. And he writes this stuff and it is spread very widely. By the time he's doing that, it's a bit late. The publishers were already a bit antsy about publishing Sabathianism, right, because he's converted. So much of this remains um, in manuscript, but it is very widely spread. So he is, in fact, touching all the different levels of the community, the merchants who are traveling, the rabbis in place, intellectuals and, and ordinary people, right? Um, and it's that, and he does that because he, that's what he understands. He's a young man, right? That's the thing. It's a generational thing as well, I think, right? You know, you have a guy who's, he's the right guy in the right place, and he and it's brilliant. I mean, he is so so successful in what he does, um, and it's manipulating that same network that sort of came together around Tachvatat, and he's now manipulating it for a different end. Right, really, really fascinating. So that that's how, like you said, that's the conclusion, the connection that you're showing between Tachvatat. And Sabathianism. So this, like I said, it relates to your book. This article, I, I, I mentioned already twice, mentioned again, I'll link to the art, the book and to the previous podcast. And this article is, is it accessible? Can uh, listeners find it? Is it on academia? Where can they find this article? Um, I think I can put it on. It, it may well be on academia. 
And if it isn't now, it will be very soon. Um, it's in, published in Jewish history, but they'll, they'll be able to find it in academia. I think it should be okay. Okay. So I will try to link to that as well. People can check out uh, your academia page. I just, I just want to add one final point. Or, um, and it's this, because this perspective on Sabatianism gives us a, just an, another way of thinking about it. Right? So we're used to thinking of Sabatianism as this kind of radical break in Jewish history. Right? All of the religious certainties that came before are broken. Right? And the Jewish world now is trying to reconstruct itself and get over this enormous crisis. Of course, that's true. I'm not saying that wasn't true. That was obviously true. However, it was also a constructive moment. That when we think about how our world functions, the interconnectedness of it, the way in which Jewish communities interact with each other and work with each other, um, what happened after 1648 and then with Sabatianism are part of a much broader process of the development of interconnections between communities. In fact, there a key moment of beginning for that. Right, so I'm not looking at what, what, how 1648 affected Sabatianism. I'm suggesting that 1648 and Sabatianism acted together right, in order to bring the Jewish world that much closer, to strengthen the connections between communities, and so to play a constructive world, a constructive role in building so a, a much more interconnected Jewish world. That's something that will develop, of course, afterwards. It's not the end, it's just the very beginning of the process. But it enables us in an interesting way to integrate Sabathianism into the course of Jewish history in, in, in a different way. It's not just a break, and right? it's also a moment of growth. Here we are. Okay, really, like I said, it came comes full circle from the beginning to the end, from the Tachbata to where we have to Sabathianism and how they interconnect. And it's a very, very interesting and compelling. Um, argument as you made here on the podcast. And as, like I said, people can check out the article and uh, read it for themselves. And once again, I uh, thank you for joining me. My pleasure.